Chapter 8 The Road to the Riverlands Vosler Stepman's mood was grim and sour. He had gone to sleep just the night before with such peace, and then somehow Dawn, with her frail rosy fingers, had snatched that peace away from him. Damien Sajan was found dead, stuffed in an oak barrel of putrid water. The barkeep of an inn named the Wandering Shill had tapped it for refreshment. When the water came forth from the spout, it was discolored and filled the tavern with the smell of death. The city guards came, rolled the cask outside, and opened it up. The duelist from Sampor was stuffed within, his throat slit ear to ear. He was still in his clothes, with a simple dagger concealed beneath his shirt. No one thinks you were involved, Corey said as their wagon ambled down the byway. The city of Bradhall and its damnable black tower were a few hours behind them now, and the sun was yellow with afternoon heat. Asked me to leave all the same, didn't they? Vaslo grumbled. Our host, Lord Braden, told you himself you were under no investigation. The city guard and Braden's local confessor are focusing on the merchants who traded the water, and the employees of the wandering shill. It's likely to be exactly what the guard suggested this morning. Gambling debts. You and I both knew there was something off about him. Him and his money. More than likely he was in with the wrong crowd and failed to deliver the spectacle he promised. Corey snapped the reins for no real reason other than he was agitated himself, and tired of Vosler's mood. The master duelist was upset that he would never know the truth about Master Osrel, or the mysterious man from Sampur who supposedly defeated him. He would never know why he had that grin on his face, how he came by all that money, or how he had convinced people he was a master duelist himself. It was a rare thing for Vosler to actually want to know something about someone else, and now that he did, there'd be no answers. They rode on in quiet for another two hours, with only the occasional courteous nod and quick pleasantry whenever someone else rode by them. The byway that leads to the Riverlands was wider than the one they had taken from Kippenton to Bradhall. In about a day, things would start to become greener, and small creeks would appear as offshoots of the Thin Ash River. A day after that, they would likely reach Penn Falls, a vibrant farming community and important trading hub. Another day again, and they would arrive at their destination, Ashgarden, and the estates of its land baron, Ayanthoto. The previous day, which had been the day of the duel, a rider arrived in Bradhall from Ashgarden, carrying a letter from Lord Thoto to Lord Olney Braden. In it, he begged Lord Braden to send Vosler Stepman to Ashgarden to serve as his personal bodyguard for a time. Unrest was growing there, and at a rate greater than elsewhere, for reasons the Lord of the Riverlands could not seem to figure out. Cory had already been in talks to arrange a shipment of spices and oils to Ashgarden, even getting as far as brokering a letter of introduction from Lord Braden. So this new request fit the merchant's plans perfectly. Corey would sell exclusive fragrances and spices in the trading square at Ashgarden, and Vosler would just make a point to consistently be in the same room as Lord Thoto. They would both earn a handsome purse for the effort. The master duelist might have protested, but as he was more or less being kicked out of Bradhall, and as Corey would likely have chosen their next destination anyways, he just went with it. He wanted adventure anyways, new people and places and things. In Bradhall, he was forced to duel once more. But, he resolved, that would never happen again. He could serve as some lord's bodyguard for a time. Maybe he'd have some of the finer things of life for a bit. That comfortable bed in the Black Tower had been nice, he had to admit. Even though he was a wealthy man, Vazlo inherited his mentor's taste for austerity. After living in the wilderness for a while as a child, so much else seemed excessive. He decided, at some point in his life, that this was likely the explanation for his greater skill in dueling. 
He was free of the imprisonment of comforts, the bewitchment of wine or the maddening smoke, free of the need for a woman, and purged of attachment to friends or family. He was, in every sense, free. Did that mean that now he wasn't dueling, he could be free of that as well? Free to sleep in nice beds. He had a fortune distributed throughout the continent, but never one time had thought about what to do with it. Maybe after traveling the road with Cory Rush for a while longer, he would simply retire to some nice oceanside estate in Narania. Or maybe he'd finance the building of a home near Lorven Falls, where he had met Safan Hood so many years earlier and begun his life as a duelist. The sun was turning orange in the west when Cory said, I am sorry that your last duel did not have the ending you hoped for. Vaslo grimaced, then shook his head, tried to shake the whole thing off. Life does with us what it wants. You know they say in the north, in Elmond, that they believe in a kind of goddess there. I've heard something about that in passing, Corey said, though we didn't see the reason for pointing that out. Turns out they were allowed to honor fate as a sort of living thing when they joined the Concordant, so long as they did not maintain any idols, or refer to it as man or woman. Still, I've heard the occasional glaive mention Lady Fate. She has three eyes, they say. One watches the past, one watches the present, and one watches the future. Before the statues were destroyed, she held the needle of a seamstress in her right hand, and a mirror in her left. How about that? Vaslo pulled out a water skin and drank deeply from it for a moment, his mouth parched from the dry road. I've never seen a depiction of any of the old gods, Cory admitted. Sounds every bit as fanciful as the scholars led us to believe. The swordsman just stared out at the road quietly, almost like he hadn't heard Cory say anything at all. Do you believe in fate? he asked after a while. Well, I, um, huh, well, how to say it, I suppose I think a person can have a sort of destiny about them. Vaslo frowned slightly, and then just silence again. The wagon made its grating sound of axle on wheel. Wheel made the shuffling noise of wood on pebbled road, and hooves clanked. Another courser passed them, heading for Bradhall, but no words were exchanged. A few trees could be seen now, though they were still almost a day's ride from anything that could be mistaken as a forest. It's a conundrum, the duelist said sourly. If you don't believe in fate, then you believe in free will. Didn't they have gods for that too once? You can't hold fate or free will in the palm of your hand, and yet... Seems to me that your fate can be decided by someone else's free will. In which case, maybe there is fate. Whoever killed Darmine, whoever did that to him, his free will destroyed Darmine's, and secured a single fate for him. The things we can't hold in our hands, somehow, they still seem to overpower us. Where are you going with this? Corey shifted uncomfortably. I guess it just seems like most people believe in some kind of fate. Maybe they don't give it three eyes and a mirror to hold, but they still feel like this invisible thing controls them. Even the Book of Proofs, isn't it a kind of religion? Bah, never mind, Vaslo grunted. Why are you bringing this up? the merchant asked. Just thinking about death a little bit, Vaslo answered. When you're older, maybe you will too. Thinking of my own death got me thinking about other people's deaths, about Darmine's, and about my parents. If you boil it down, they all had beliefs. Sure, the Book of Proofs and its forty reasons seem, well, reasonable, but it's not exactly like I know enough about all that to disprove any of it, you know? Might as well just be a belief. 
And whoever killed Darmin, surely he believed something that made him do it. And the people who rode down the Freemen during the Purge, they believed something so fiercely they murdered strangers for it. Seems to me, sometimes, maybe the best thing to believe is nothing at all. I don't think we can believe in nothing. Cory fiddled with the reins a little and looked up at the open sky above them. I think we are creatures of meaning. Meaning makes us human, and it begets belief. Our parents are special to us because we believe they are, and that gives parenthood meaning. On some level, you clearly prefer life to death. Because you believe it is preferable to live than to die, when your life is threatened, you defend it. I believe that if I can be a successful trader, I will do my family name honor, and make good on the head start in life that my father gave me by fighting. None of these things are necessarily true, but we believe them all the same. Thoslow didn't say anything back, so they just rode quietly again for another two hours. When the sun was low enough in the west, Corey broke the silence again. We'll need to set camp. We won't make it to Pen Falls tonight, and it'll be dark soon. Far down the road, perhaps a league or two, the glimmering orange light of some other traveler's fire could already be seen. The duelist still didn't say anything, but when the wagon pulled off the road and stopped beneath a tree to hitch the horses to, he began helping Corey unload their camping materials. Lord Braden had given them a canvas large enough for them both to sleep comfortably under, and high-quality bedrolls of comfortable sheepskin and wool. They set up a few stakes, and using a low-hanging branch from the tree as additional support, set up the tent. Inside, Vazo rolled out the large bedrolls while Corey refilled water skins from a tapped barrel in the wagon. When the merchant came back with water skins and dried meats in his arms, Vazlo was reattaching his sword belt and tying his boots. His small, circular buckler was already strapped to his left forearm. Off to a duel, and at this hour, Corey joked. Just need to clear my head, Vazlo answered. It's a clear night. I'll still be able to see our camp at a long distance, and the moon is bright enough to guide me. Hardly any trees out here, so should be a safe enough walk. I'll be back in a little bit. Corey put down the things he was carrying, then crossed his arms and regarded the duelist. You've the melancholy on you, don't you? Vaslo shrugged. Just need a walk is all. Corey held Vaslo still in his eyes for a moment. Vaslo, did you lose your parents in the purge? For a split second, the swordsman's face seemed to twist up. Then, as quickly, it was back to that cold, tired stare he usually wore. Yes. And with that, he turned and began walking. Melancholy. Vazlo spat with disdain once he had walked away. Still, he had to admit that he didn't feel himself. The joy of his last duel had been completely ruined. He would have retired with a clean victory, even if there was something funny about that guy. It was public and lavish and nobly hosted. No duelist could want for a better way to end his career. Now, the story of Vazlo Stepman's final duel would always be mingled with the atrocity of his challenger's subsequent murder. Meaning... Corey had hit the proverbial nail on the head. Meaning was exactly what Vosler was missing. It was odd, but he had never cared for it before. He took enough satisfaction from his fame and his skill for most of his life that he never really bothered with the meaning of it. Once you get into meanings, things get murky. Now that he was facing retirement, he didn't know where to find the meaning of his life anymore. He would always be the famous duelist Vosler Stepman, of course, but that didn't seem enough anymore. That damned kid in Kippenton, he grunted to himself as he sat down on a flat boulder overlooking a rolling valley, silvered in the moonlight. 
Something about that duel had made Voslo's love of dueling turn sour. In fact, if he was being very honest with himself, he hadn't really taken any pride or joy in a duel in nearly a decade. Still, he had been able to put off dealing with that fact until that one duel. It was his first duel until dead in several years, and against someone so young. Vosla would try to negotiate until he yielded or until bloodied for nearly an hour, but he wouldn't hear it. What made Vosla even more upset was realizing, hardly ten minutes later when the duel was done and the man was dead, that he couldn't even recall his name. Where had the meaning been in that? He had hoped to make it better, to leave an easier taste in his mouth. A nobly hosted duel with a good audience and a good ending. It was all he wanted, in a life where he wanted little. That had been taken from him too, and he didn't understand why or how. Now he was left with nothing. The last two people to ever challenge Vosla were corpses, and not at his wish. For the first time in his storied career, he felt more a murderer than a duelist. He knew he couldn't be blamed for what happened to Darmin Sajan, but inarguably felt that Darmin would still be alive if he hadn't dueled him. Did that not make him a part of it? Somehow? He looked at the buckler strapped to his left arm. What would you have done, Sarfan, if you had lived to be as old as I am? In the hollowed halls of memory, Sarfan represented the end of the golden age of dueling, so far as Vosla was concerned. The joy he felt as a teenager training under someone who genuinely cared about him. The pride he felt whenever his master defeated another duelist. The confidence he developed as he became stronger, faster, and more sure-footed. All of those things cast a golden hue over his memories of that time. There were many famous duelists when Vosla was young. Sure, Safan Hood was often said to be the best of them, but there was also Carmen Villettis, who fought with a saber and a short sword both. There was the woman duelist Ella of Strongborough, or Ella the Shield as people named her, because she fought wearing a tall riding shield on her left arm, striking from behind it when opportunity arose. Then there was the snake. Vaslo couldn't remember his real name anymore, but his only steel was a dirk, and he preferred instead to always fight with a thin wooden sword. They broke so often that he wore several on his back, almost like a quiver. They were fast, and even when they splintered it spelled problems for his opponents. No undefeated duelists back then, he said to his buckler. To Vosdo, his status as an undefeated master duelist was a symptom of the decline of dueling, and not, as many thought, a symptom of his own excellence. He remembered the first time he saw Sarfan lose a duel, and for a moment, it was like someone had chiseled a hole into the fabric of his life. The man wasn't even a notable duelist by most standards, though Sarfan recognized the name when he heard it. Barney Irwin he never forgot the name because of how stupid it sounded when the man said it. Who has two first names as their entire name? It seemed ludicrous. Still, Safan accepted the duel and they fought in the sand on the Vulture Coast. It was a duel until bloodied, probably because it was the most likely chance for the man to win against such a famous duelist as Safan Hood. Until bloodied can be won by a chance nick of the arm or fingers when you're fighting with steel, and they were. At the time, in the young Voslo's mind, Barney did everything wrong. His footwork was off, his swordplay was deceptive and lackluster, everything about him seemed mediocre. In the time they spent together afterwards, Vazlo's misconceptions were corrected. Safan handled the defeat glowingly. He introduced Barney to Vazlo, and they camped together and trained for three nights afterwards. Barney's footwork was extraordinary. You could never catch him where he was, instead, you had to wager a guess as to where he was just about to be. If you couldn't do that, you couldn't beat him. He called it the dance, and ever since, Vosler had called it the same. 
Eight years later, on a muddy road in Jero's Crossing, Vodha ran into him again. Safan had passed by then. He challenged Barney to a duel until bloodied and won by a cut to the man's thigh. They stayed up late that night, drinking and reminiscing, and he remembered how proud Barney was of Vaza's footwork. I'll never be famous, Barney had said once he was deep in his cups. I just don't have a good name for it. It was a different time, Safan, he said, looking more specifically at the steel boss in the center of his buckler, the same boss that once adorned Safan's buckler. No one was getting murdered after duels. We celebrated one another's successes, and were there for each other in defeat. The duel until dead was practically unheard of. He spit onto the ground. Now duelists gamble on themselves and get murdered. Now young men challenge master duelists to the death. He unstrapped the buckler and turned it over in his hands. My buckler will show them the way, he said, changing his voice a little to imitate the more enthusiastic sound of Safan's voice. Most people used shields of any sort to deflect blows, and to save themselves. Part of Safan's genius was that he didn't use his buckler for either of those reasons. It's a part of my arm that doesn't feel pain, he told Vosler once. That's how you should use it. When his master used his buckler in a duel, it was to direct and redirect, and never to save his life. Footwork did that. Positioning and posturing did that. If those weren't enough to keep you from the blade, then a shield wouldn't be either. For Safan Hood, and his disciple Vaslo Stepman after him, the buckler was equal parts weapon and stratagem, and not at all a defensive thing. The buckler can do what the hand cannot, Safan had said often. It can grab the blade of a sword. Vaslo drew his sword out and laid it across his lap. The steel, with all its little imperfections, reflected the moonlight of the clear night sky above. He ran his fingers caringly across its surface, trying to feel every little nick that had ever been left on it. Call me, said Wynne, Alwith, Kozrik, Trion, Elrister, Lamy, Cedric, the Fetists, Morin, Swell, Borkor. He paused a minute and strained his memory. What had been that one's name before? Larenty Jerris, at the Duelist Square, that tall blonde fellow. Julius, he remembered. He knew he couldn't remember a few others after him. When he was younger, he thought it a kind of noble and symbolic gesture to memorize the name of every person he killed in a duel. Colmy stood out the most, obviously, as he was the first. He was near Vazlo's age at the time, in his twenty-first year a newly a grown man. Vazlo would never forget it. The rasp his breath made, the struggling, gurgling sound, the sheer panic in his eyes. Vazlo didn't know what he thought happened when you stabbed a man, but that wasn't it. There was no quiet collapse, no lost words, just fear and panic and the clutching and clawing at a wound that would never close. Then he was dead, and his face stayed in that same twisted, awful expression of fear. I oh, don't fear death, the young Komi Telkazi had told him when he issued the challenge. Vazlo learned that day that every man fears death, once the claws are around him. I'll always remember you at least, Komi, he said to himself. Then he moved his fingers down the blade to halfway, and thumbed the wide notch in the steel there. And you. I'll never forget you either. Dad. For a split second he remembered his mother's bloodied, broken face, laying there on the floor beneath his father. His dad's hands were still wrapped around her throat, a mix of madness and anguish in his eyes. I had to. Vazlo said the words slowly and full of venom. The same words his father said to him when his fourteen-year-old son walked in on him murdering her.
He ground his teeth together, and the aged duelist's face began to twist in anger. Rage poured over his skin and turned it hot, and for only the second time in his life a terrible hatred seized him. He breathed heavily through clenched teeth and tried to get a hold of himself, but before he knew it he was up. His sword fell away and he pulled out his ironwood weapon instead, turned, and began hacking at the boulder he had just been sitting on. You didn't have to. I didn't have to. Meaningless. 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 The words boiled through his teeth and foam gathered at the corners of his mouth. Strike after strike came down onto the stone. The weapon shook painfully in his hands each time, but he didn't care. He wasn't there anymore. He was fourteen again, and he had that chair in his hands, the one with the strong ironwood back pieces, and he was bringing it down on his father again, and again, and again. That wasn't a boulder. It was just his dad there, his red and bloodied arms, his shattered elbow, the fear and anger and sadness in his eyes. That look that said he had a reason, that there was an explanation. That look that screamed he had to do it, and he loved his son, his boy. It made Vaslo rage all the more. Then, just as the chair it came from did on that day, his ironwood splintered and broke against the stone. And then, just as he had on that day, he dropped it, snatched up his father's sword from the ground, and brought it up high with death in his heart. A cool breeze blew across the moonlit field, and it took Vaslo's father with it, and his youth, and left a rock and an old man in their stead. He was breathing hard, put his sword down, and fell to his knees. Only then did he fully realize he had broken his ironwood weapon. It was laying there on the ground by his knee, cracked at the middle, unfixable. Like me, Vazda whispered, and leaned forward so that his sweaty forehead met the cold stone. Meaningless. <laughs>